the book of Acts chapter 5. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts and a desire to examine this church and this Christianity of the early church that turned the whole world upside down, and we want to learn from them. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll put a Bible in your hand. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. Every time you open that Bible and you start to read, God is speaking. It's the most wonderful book in the whole world. Acts chapter 5 Picking things up in verse 11, following God's smiting of Ananias and Sapphira. And so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done through among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray together. Lord, this Christianity that we see so pure and so clean and so simple in the book of Acts is so attractive to us in a world that we live in that tends to complicate everything to the nth degree. And we pray that you would open this passage up to us today and you would speak to us, Lord, of what it is that you want us to be. We've had enough of the definitions of the world and the ideas of the world, and sometimes even in the church world. We want to hear from you today. And so would you speak to us and cause us to really embrace the single great lesson and point of these verses in your book. And Lord, that you would make them the point of great reality in each one of our lives for your glory, Lord, and our, for our good and for the good of all of the people that watch our lives as Christians. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> the context of these verses that we're studying this morning is the judgment meted out by God in the early church against the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira when uh, he smote them and it resulted in their death. And when God did that with Ananias and Sapphira, as we saw last week, he was communicating the danger that hypocrisy represents to his work. Uh, Jesus is not a hypocrite, never was a hypocrite. It's impossible to represent him by living a hypocritical life. And he wanted to really emphasized that point right at the onset of the birth of the early church and to communicate, God did, his displeasure with hypocrisy. And he also was communicating in the, you know, kind of drastic measure that he took here, the strength of, of his action, let's put it that way, his determination to, put, to do what is necessary to protect Christianity as a whole, and also the local church in particular, from becoming tainted by that sin, the sin of hypocrisy, in order to keep the church pure. Now, humanly speaking, when you read through uh, Acts chapter 5, maybe the first time you ever read it as a Christian, or maybe the hundredth time that you've read it as a Christian, and the light kind of goes on for us, humanly speaking, you would have thought that this event would have resulted in the death of the early church, that after God takes and uh, basically kills two of his children, a, a man and a wife engaged in hypocrisy in a church service in the early, uh, early church, that the book of Acts and Christianity would have ended with verse 10 of chapter 5, that no one would have ever wanted to be associated with Christianity ever again. But what's fascinating to notice is that the exact opposite Thing occurred in that early church. 
It resulted in even greater miracles being performed, in greater numbers of people becoming saved. Multitudes, were told in verse 14, of both men and women. And it's completely counterintuitive. It's the exact opposite of what we would uh, think would have been the case, the result of this uh, work of God, and yet it happened. And this passage this morning that we study instructs us concerning the many blessings that come as a result of God's purification of a church, as a result of purity and the lives of His people. Now, allow me to speak about a couple of specific things that uh, are important, I think, in the age in which we're wanting to represent the Lord as Christians in the world, and specifically in the particular challenges of doing so in the Western world and in the United States of America. A couple of things are important uh, to focus on. This incident concerning Ananias and Sapphira reminds us that the Lord is present in every single assembly of His people. He is in this room right now, and He is in this room in a massive way. He said that wherever two or more of His children are gathered, there He is in the midst, and He is in our midst in a special way when we're gathering together and assembled together related to Him. So He is present in this room right now with us, and He's present with us always, but here in, a, in kind of a special way. And He wants to always enjoy the service as well. And God, when He attends the church, in any church, ours as well as any of the others that are going on in, in our community here today, He has a desire to participate in the service. You and I have participated in the service with a prayer, with agreeing in prayer, with our worship. And God is as eager to participate in this service as any of us are and to bring to this service what He alone can bring to it. He wants to bless it and he wants to bless us. And Ananias and Sapphira teach us that he's unable to do so if the church becomes marked by hypocrisy or willful, deliberate, determined lifestyle sin and the lives of his people. Not talking about being less than perfect, not talking about uh, failing in a massive way even, and yet repenting of that sin and getting right with the Lord and continuing our walk with him. This is something entirely different, willful, deliberate lifestyle sin, where I just settle into that, I grow comfortable with that, then it makes it very difficult for the Lord to enjoy the assembling of His people. It ruins the service for Him, and after all, the service is supremely for Him. And uh, this worship that we've offered to Him, sometimes we can get so self-centered, and we live in a culture that is very determined to keep us very focused upon ourselves, and um, we're the most important people in the whole world, and we can even uh, leave a service like this. Somebody asks us, maybe coming in at second service, how was the service? And say, oh, it was great or it was lousy, depending upon what I got out of it. And the Lord wants us to get something out of a service. He wants to meet with us. He's eager to bless us. But the service doesn't occur supremely for us. It occurs supremely for Him. We have a need to worship Him. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. And so even sometimes if I don't necessarily get something, you know, that is, I would say that was a mountaintop experience for me. Uh, if it was a blessing to Him, then that's tremendous. The Bible talks about the sacrifice of praise, the praise that we offer to God, whether we feel something or we don't feel something, or we get something out of it or we don't get something out of it. And so often there's this idea again, where we begin to, even in church, lose sight of His presence. We lose sight of what this is all about, and it now becomes all about me. Very easy when we're uh, taking and maybe trying to find a church that God is, uh, wants us to become a part of, and we come in and we visit that church two or three times, and very often within even the Christian culture in the United States of America, we judge it by, what does this have to offer me? What does this do for me? And rather than thinking, is this a place that honors God? Is this a place that blesses God? Is this a place that will allow me to do that to God? And one of the reasons that I mention it is that 
In the book of Revelation, when Jesus writes his seven letters to the seven churches, it is believed by many Bible scholars that the final four of those seven churches are going to characterize uh, four major blocks of professing Christianity in the last days because God, Jesus speaks in each of those final four letters of his return. And the one church that is probably the biggest and the most prosperous of the four is the church of Laodicea. And it's a church that is, Jesus speaks to it. You, say, you know, I say, I, 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 fills the whole letter as the people are thinking about themselves. And Jesus is on the outside of that church knocking to get in. And they are oblivious to the fact that there is something wrong with that picture. Uh, they have completely lost sight, though assembling as a church, completely lost sight of the fact that this is about God supremely. And if it is made about God supremely, then He's going to take care of us and bless us as well. And in fact, it only allows, that's the only, having the priority right is the only way that allows Him uh, to do that. So in the culture that that we live in. It's easy to forget about God even within church and even within church services. Second thing that I think is important to look at, and sometimes people look at the passage and they think, why in the world, uh, why doesn't God do what he did to Ananias and Sapphira today? I don't know. Maybe you've been in a service where he's you know, knocked a couple people out and taken them home. Um, I haven't been. We've had medical emergencies, but nothing uh, like this. And so the question sometimes becomes, does God still do this? It's interesting to notice in terms of uh, the early church that this event wasn't unprecedented. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he spoke about the fact that there were Christians within that church who were so divisive within uh, the church at Corinth, and maybe even larger, and to other assemblies as well. But they had become so divisive and so um, uh, non-respecting of other Christians, and so and so detrimental in their influence in terms of division within that church that the Lord was taking, and He was He was. Uh, uh, causing them to sleep, the passage says, which means that he, he put them to death, and they died in the early church. And Paul gave that warning of the importance of not coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper and so forth in a way that's unworthy. And when we think about unworthy, we think of, wow, I'm never worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. I'm not perfect. He's not talking about that. He's talking about in a way that is unworthy in the sense of not reflecting the love that he has for his whole body and trying to uh, destroy or harm his body, his local church, in the way that uh, these people were doing. And so he took, he took a number of people home to him. It was just like, all right, God looks at a person and says, they're going to do way more damage in their life, the way that they're conducting themselves and handling, handling themselves, than they're ever going to do good. I'm going to get them out of there and take them up here. And uh, I'll put them really close. I'll put them in the front seat right by the desk of the teacher and uh, keep a closer uh, watch on them. And so the Lord did do that. But the main way that God uh, deals with hypocrisy or deals with deliberate kind of lifestyle sin within a local church is today is through church discipline. And it's a means of kind of inquiry related to sin where somebody's dug in on a sin. Maybe they're living with someone outside of marriage or whatever it might be. It becomes aware. We become aware of it. Nobody's looking for these kind of things. It's very unpleasant church discipline. A person is approached in a process, and in the course of that process, if they're unwilling to repent of that sin and call themselves Christians, then, then church discipline has to be uh, enacted and then the removal of the person until they come to a place of repenting. And church discipline is basically the immune system of the body of Christ. 
And I think it's helpful to think about it in that regard. You and I have an immune system in our body. If we do not have a healthy immune system, then our body has no hope of survival. Same thing with the body of Christ. If there was no immune system, no means for keeping it healthy and pure, then ultimately every kind of sin, every kind of spiritual disease would come in. It would ultimately overwhelm any local church, overwhelm the body of Christ, and ultimately kill it. And so church discipline is what helps to keep it healthy and helps to keep it pure. Now on to the blessings of purity, the effect that God's purification of His people had upon Christians and non-Christians alike in that early church. We notice the effect in verses 5 and 11 that this act that he performed against Adonias and Sapphira, the effect that it had upon Christians. Twice we're told, once in each of those verses, that great fear fell upon uh, the Christians in that church upon witnessing the death of Ananias and Sapphira. So it produced within God's people a very, very healthy fear of living a life of hypocrisy. And there is these wonderful seasons. I mean, we don't wake up in the morning and say, boy, I hope something like this happens within my life. But they are necessary seasons in our life where we are uh, once again impacted in a powerful way with the fear of the Lord. Every once in a while through the years as a pastor, and uh, something has happened where you'll hear, I'll hear about maybe the fall of a servant of the Lord into some kind of sin, and that it has cost uh, him his ministry or whatever it might be. And I never, when I hear that kind of news, I never think about it uh, of a deal like, wow, I mean, I I'm, I would never do something like that. There's, that's never my reaction uh, to it at all. I am immediately filled with the fear of the Lord. And all I want to do is just find a closet somewhere or a quiet place someplace that I can just get alone with the Lord and ask the Lord to search my heart concerning any wicked thing that is in me, anything that is, would put me in danger of getting on that path or being ultimately disqualified, and this is a, and for him to remove it from my life. And that is a healthy fear, and, and, it's in, and I know that you've experienced very much the same kind of thing in your Christian lives and in your service to the Lord. Psalm 19 verse 9 declares in this regard that the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. I believe it, but I also believe that it cleanses, it cleanses, it cleanses our lives of sin in a way that is important. Now, the fear of the Lord that's spoken of here is, of course, it refers to the fear of the Lord. It produced within these early Christians a fresh awe within them for God, a fresh appreciation for His holiness, for His nature. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord in a child of God, it, it's not speaking of the fact that we're to live a life in a relationship with God where we're cowering kind of in terror in some corner of a house like an abused child, and we're afraid that God is going to smite us and He's going to wipe us out, and anything I do wrong could set Him off. And if you've grown up in a house like that, you know what I'm talking about, or that He's watching, you know, every move that I make so that He can punish me for every wrong that I, that I ever do. It's not talking about that kind of thing. The fear of the Lord in a child of God, it speaks of having this deep, deep, deep respect for God and a deep awe of God and a deep, deep reverence for God, for who He is and for what He is. And the fear of the Lord is a very, very important part of every Christian's life, very important part of my relationship with Him. Jesus is my Savior, He is my shepherd, He is my best friend in all of the world, but I fear Him. I fear Him. God the Father is my God, He's my Heavenly Father, He is my Abba Father, He is my Daddy. I enjoy great intimacy with Him, but I also fear Him. There's fear that's involved in the relationship 
as well. And it helps to keep me from ever coming under the illusion, and I'm as prone to it as Ananias and Sapphira, that somehow I can choose a life of deliberate sin, settle into that as a lifestyle, and that God is going to be okay with that. And that is how uh, this fear of the Lord and a fear of doing that is just how it should be because I'm dumb enough to do what Ananias and Sapphira did. I'll tell you, I can't figure it out in my mind. I've tried in walking with the Lord since 1980 to try and figure this out between the Lord and me. Now, how does this knowing you as friend, knowing you as Abba Father, and then still having this fear of you. How does all of this work together? How can both of those things be a part of the relationship that I have uh, with you? How does all of that come together? All I know is that it does and that it's needed. Concerning holy living, there's a part of me that responds to His love, and then there's a part of me that responds to the fear of the Lord. And how do I know practically that I possess a fear of the Lord as a Christian? The single greatest mark of someone who fears the Lord is just living a life of simple obedience to God's commandments. It's as simple as that. That's the mark of a person who fears the Lord. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that is how I can know whether I'm one who fears and respects and stands in awe of the Lord. And I think that for us here this morning, a fresh consciousness of the fear of the Lord never does us any harm as God's people. It only does us good, and we see it in the passage. Second, what God did here resulted in even greater demonstrations of God's power in the early church through signs and wonders. And we see that in verse 12. And here God reinforced the relationship between purity and power in the kingdom of God. There's a relationship between purity and power in the kingdom of God. And there's a relationship between purity and power in a local church. There's a relationship between purity and power in the individual life of a Christian. And without purity, the Holy Spirit will be grieved in our lives. He will ultimately be quenched and effectively turning off the tap of the supernatural in the body of Christ or within a local church or within an individual life. But it is purity that allows God to manifest His signs and His wonders and His power as fully as He desires to do so through His people. Now, remember, signs and wonders in the Bible are never something that God just does willy-nilly. It isn't just to say, you know, uh, Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat in the old Bullwinkle uh, cartoons. God doesn't do it to show off. There's a reason. Uh, there's rationale behind His signs and His wonders. Again, we remember that a wonder is when God does something supernatural that gets people to stop and to make them wonder, to wonder about God to wonder about the things of God. Think about the culture that we live in. Think about the culture we live in, especially at this time of the year. And I mean, everybody's just trying to find a parking place somewhere where they're selling something. And I mean, we're in a culture, and then just apart from Christmas, just the fast pace of the culture. Everybody's day is crammed full with what we need to get done in order to move forward. The demands are great within, I think everything's broken around us in terms of what it's turning life into, and it's a sign of the last days. But sometimes when we're in that place and it's just boom, 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 it's just the next appointment, it's the next thing, the next thing, and days just start to run into each other, God needs to break into our world. And something happened to, to jar us out of, you know, the zombie land that we're in so often, the life that we're living. But because everyone else is living it, we don't see it as something strange or something that ought to be reconsidered. And so he does a wonder, and it makes people stop and to look at it and to think. 
Was that God or was that not God? How did that happen? Does God exist? If he does exist, how do I come to know him? That's what a wonder does. And a sign, just like physical signs in life, they allow us to go from one place, our home, and then successfully navigate the streets to come to a successful conclusion to our journey. And signs that God does in the forms of miracles do the same thing. They are intended to communicate something to people about God so that they will come to the con- proper and successful conclusion of their life and the destination in their life by putting their faith in Christ. And so, signs and wonders are significant, but if a church becomes impure, then God isn't going to be inclined to direct people to that church. He's not going to confirm what's going on there with His presence, with His signs, and with His wonders, because He looks at it and says, I can't grow people to maturity there, because holiness is maturity, because holiness is Christ-likeness. The most holy life that has ever lived in human history is the life of Christ. Holiness is not defined by religious men and women. It is not defined by legalists who add to the Word of God. It is not defined by you and I. To live a holy life is to live a life like Christ, the greatest life that a person can possibly live. And purity allows God to freely express Himself supernaturally however He wants to, as often as He wants to, whether in a church or in the life of an individual Christian. There's a lot about miracles that I don't understand, and it's all, a lot of it's very much shrouded in mystery to me. What he does or he doesn't do isn't necessarily tied to the purity of a church or, or an individual. It's not necessarily tied to faith. It's not necessarily tied to prayer. Those things all have a part in it, but we can't do all of those things and then force God to perform a miracle for us or to accomplish a miracle for us. But a pure life allows us to walk with the confidence that God has the freedom. He faces no hindrance at all in accomplishing and performing a miracle for us any time that He wants to, that He can feel free to do that in my life or through my life if He chooses to do it. And that is a beautiful confidence that a Christian has in their life, and it only comes from a pure life. How effective are your prayers? How effective is your faith when you are in a place where you're not right with God, I'm not right with God, and I've messed this up, and there's maybe been an argument with a loved one or a husband or a wife or whatever, and then you go in to pray someone related to some need in your life. How does that prayer go for you? Ah, it's a pretty awkward prayer. And one of the reasons is, is that because there's sin in our life, whether it's protracted or just happened, we lose a confidence in, in, our, uh, in the fact that God is going to answer our prayers until we make things right with the other person, until we make things right with God. And so, this purity within our life gives us the confidence that as we're praying for miracles in our own life, miracles in the lives of our loved ones, miracles in the world and in the body of Christ, it gives us that, that beautiful confidence that nothing in my life is hindering from Him doing that, and an impure life loses that confidence, and that's a terrible loss for a person that was wanting to make a difference in impacting the world for Christ. Third notice in the first part of verse 13, we notice the effect that this purifying had upon what is known in the Scriptures as the mixed multitude. So there's this group in verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them. There's group, this group now that's called the rest, and after they heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, they said, no, I'm not going to church. I am not going uh, to assemble together uh, with those Christians. They kept their distance. This would seem to refer to those that uh, might be tempted to join the church out of kind of the excitement of what is going on in terms of the signs and the wonders and the miracles there in the early church. But 
they weren't really interested in holiness or purity or repenting of their sins or knowing God or obeying God. And I think that what is referred to here is a New Testament equivalent of what is known in the Old Testament as, uh, as the mixed multitude. When Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, there came out of Egypt not just the Jews, but also joining them in the exodus out of Egypt was this group that God called the mixed multitude. And they were non-Jews. Many of them were probably fellow slaves in Egypt uh, from other nations than the Jews. And so they weren't leaving Egypt as a part of the Jews departing from Egypt because they had a love for the Jewish God or for spiritual reasons like the children of Israel. But they were departing and becoming a part of that excess, exodus for fleshly reasons, for self-dominated reasons. They're sick of Egypt, which is a type of the world in, in the Scriptures, and this looked like an exciting kind of thing to be a part of. And they could see that God was with the Jews. They liked the excitement of the ten plagues that had been uh, performed by God to cause the children of Israel to uh, escape uh, from Egypt. And so joining the children of Israel was a way to escape from uh, Egypt as well. But they weren't really serious about God or His plan for their lives or His plan for the world. And as the name that God gave them suggests, they were mixed, partly into the things of God on some kind of a level, but equally into the things of the flesh, into the things of the world, into the things of Egypt. They'd be the kind of the Christian who we say, as a famous proverb goes, who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church, or one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the things of the Lord. They still have a love for much of what is back in Egypt, but they don't want to go back there completely. Uh, they like being around spiritual people. They like being around the things of the Lord to a point. They like uh, nice messages from the Bible. They like lively singing and potlucks and being around good people and nice people. There's good people down there at that place. But they have no intention of leaving behind their sin to wholly follow after God. As the old saying goes, they want the best of both worlds. And they were a terrible influence upon the children of Israel. And if this mixed multitude had one chief characteristic beyond its carnality, it was the fact that they were complainers. And it wasn't long as they were complaining about how God supplied them with food. They complained about water. They complained about the heat. They complained about the cold. They complained about everything. And it wasn't long before they had God's people complaining right along with them <clears throat> concerning the same things until ultimately at a place called Kibroth Hatava. And there'll be a test on that at the end of the sermon, so don't forget that. There's a place called Kibroth Hata'ava in response to the complaining of the mixed multitude that drew God's people into the same complaining. God decided, and they were complaining for meat. We haven't had any meat. We just got this man and blah, 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 blah. And so God says, all right, you want meat, I'll send you meat. And he sends this quail in like a cloud coming in across the wilderness. And it was just, the, you know, about three feet off the ground the quail were just perfect to just knock down with a tennis racket and, uh, you know, put a little spice on it and eat it. And so they, they were gathering these huge amounts of these quail. They had the number in the millions. And then as they began to eat this, as, as God supplied it to them in the, the uh, response to their complaining, while the meat, we're told, in Numbers chapter 11 was still in their teeth, they were chewing on it, God struck them with a plague. And that's how God removed the mixed multitude and their influence from his people after they had joined them coming out of Egypt. And it's almost as if Satan thought, well, I can't hold the people of God in Egypt anymore, so I'll do the next best thing. I'll send Egypt with them. I'll keep Egypt in their midst through a mixed multitude. And they have, uh, this mixed multitude has enough spiritual characteristics to fit in with God's people, but enough of the world still in them, enough of Egypt still in them to corrupt God's people. And it's a very, very effective device that Satan uses today in planting the tares among the wheat. 
and this judgment of Ananias and Sapphira caused that kind of person, the hypocrite, the game player, the poser, to keep their distance. And in keeping their distance, with it, their influence uh, upon God's people toward carnality was separated from them. And the early church wasn't harmed by that at all. Fourth, notice in verse 12, that this purifying work of, uh, of God protected the unity of the body. A great deal of conflict that can occur within a church can occur between those who are uh, walking in uh, a sobriety concerning the things of the Lord. They're wanting to grow in the things of the Lord, like the apostles, like the overwhelming majority of the early church here. And they, they are full on for God in the things of the Lord. And then the mixed multitude comes in, and now you've got this fight between the two groups. Because where the one group will want to take a church and advance the kingdom of God, and where a mixed multitude will want to take a church are two entirely different directions and to two entirely different destinations. And so conflict occurs as a result. And when the mixed multitude uh, is removed, then it makes for a very peaceful spiritual environment. Fifth, the, notice at the end of verse 13, this work of purification produced a great respect in people in general, uh, the unsaved people for God's people. Verse 13 there, but the people esteemed them, that is, these early Christians, highly. The, the smiting of Ananias and Sapphira produced an admiration in the unsaved world for Christians. And it's interesting that it would do that. And there are honest people in the world who may not yet be willing to become a Christian. They may not even like Christians. They may not like you. They may not like me. But when they see someone walking the walk and talking the talk, they have to notice it. And way down deep inside, they will possess a respect for that person, even if they'll never, ever say it. The respect that you give to someone who's living true to their convictions. And I bet if we could know here this morning some number of us who are Christians this morning were influenced by just such a person. At some point in time in your life, you weren't ready yet to become a Christian, but you watched some Christian live out their Christian life simply and powerfully day in and day out. They weren't perfect, but they were the real deal. And you quietly respected them. And that respect for Christianity and respect for that Christian played in a significant part in you one day becoming a Christian yourself. It's a powerful witness. And it was a powerful part of the fruit of what occurred with Ananias and Sapphira as people stood at a distance in some cases, but they were watching and watching for reality. And they respected reality when they saw it. Sixth and finally in verse 14, the purifying <clears throat> had an effect upon another group, the, that is those who were not yet saved, and they came to the Lord in droves. Notice in verse 14, it says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now again, this just seems so counterintuitive. You would have think that the lost world would not have wanted to have anything to do with Christianity or these Christians or a Christian church, and yet the exact opposite occurred. And here you have church growth occurring because God powerfully demonstrated the importance of sincerity and purity among his people as opposed to lowering the standard in order to make Christianity appear less demanding and thus to make it more attractive to people on a carnal level. There's enormous pressure on churches in the United States of America 
to do exactly that. And anywhere you see a pastor in this country or you see an elder or you see a board member or you see a deacon, you see a leader in a church, they are under that pressure. And it is very, very significant in kind of the church growth movements that are here today and all. There's so much pressure to just lower the standard until there is virtually no standard at all. And yet here in the early church was this, um, the, the standard that God kept high, it, where he kept it to a place where it means something uh, to be a Christian. And this lowering of the standard and the, at the compromise of God's Word is a bad thing for the kingdom of God, but it is also a very bad thing for the sinner. And it's a bad thing for the kingdom of God because it defeats the very thing that God was trying to drive home in smiting Ananias and Sapphira, and that is that he wants his people and his kingdom to be represented by holiness, that is, by Christ-likeness in this world because he knows he cannot be represented properly in this world by sin and by selfishness that dominates the world around us. And it communicates that Christianity, and, and, and so this is his, uh, his desire for it. This is why he did what he did. And the lowering of that standard communicates that Christianity and Christians really are no different from everything else in the world and everyone else in the world. And sometimes I'll hear people say that as they're sharing the gospel or they're maybe sharing from the Word of God, and uh, they'll say something that, you know, really as a Christian, I'm no different than anyone else in the world except I'm saved. I hope that's not true of a single one of us as Christians. We are saved, but we are justified, and we are sanctified, and we are a whole bunch of afides as a result of Christ in our life. And there's a place where humility becomes a false humility, and the danger is that we misrepresent the body of Christ and what a Christian is before the world. And then maybe an even greater dam dam damage is, is that we, dangerous that we begin to believe that ourselves. That as a Christian, I'm really no different than anyone else in the world except that I'm saved. Jesus declared, and he said, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's in good for nothing but to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And this idea here, this of, of, of there's no difference or lowering the standard, it's not only not good for the body of Christ, it's not good for the church, but it's equally bad for the sinner, the lost, the unsaved. Because where else are they going to see a truly changed and different life if not in us, if not in the body of Christ? And then in seeing that different quality of life, to gain the hope that the change that God has accomplished in our lives, He will also do in them. And I am thankful that before I became a Christian, I was exposed to many, many sincere Christians who lived a different kind of life. They lived a life like Christ so that when the day came that I trusted in Jesus, I knew from their lives that he would accomplish the same thing in my life that he had accomplished in them. And that's a wonderful thing to have a, a hope within the life of a Christian. When I got saved, I, the last thing in the world on my mind, maybe it shouldn't have been, but the last thing on my mind is I want to get saved so I don't end up in hell. Never entered my mind. It did later. I'm thankful for it. 
my needs were a little more immediate. I needed to be saved from me. I needed to be saved from my sin. I needed to be saved from my selfishness. And so it meant the world to me to be able to see a different quality of life, and not one or two Christians, but in many Christians, and to know that if I would just put my faith in Christ, God would do the same miracle within my life as well. And it's a wonderful thing to present before the world every single day as we live our lives just in this simple, beautiful, obedient relationship uh, to the Lord. And it's important to realize, and especially I think in this day where everyone's afraid to say anything hard or demanding, even in church, that I feel the pressure myself at times for fear of offending people or scaring people away. The political correctness is really crazy today. It's amounting to censorship. It's a, it's, I don't care what view you hold on any subject. You ought to be very afraid of the fact that people are afraid to speak their minds out on what they believe, and then we can hear that and decide what we want to do with that. This is crazy environment to minister in and uh, to serve the Lord in. But I think in this environment where there's so much pressure not to say anything that'll offend or anything that might scare people away. Obviously, God wasn't terribly concerned of it with Ananias and Sapphira. But to realize that every single day, all day, every day, the Holy Spirit is working in the life of every single human being in this world, however many billions that it is, all day, every day, individually and personally, to bring them to a faith in Jesus. And that truth comforts me as I pray for many within my family and my friends and neighbors who do not yet know the Lord. I know that God is working every day to bring them to Christ in the same way that He did for me. And it's a wonderful, wonderful confidence that the Lord is doing so. And when the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life, there will be a conviction of sin and wrongdoing, and there will be a strong desire to repent and to live a different kind of life. And repentance and a call to live a different kind of life, to be born again and receive the power to do that, the life of a person where the Holy Spirit is working in their life, that will be good news for them. They will crave it. They will long for it. It won't be bad news, but very good news. And holiness and purity, it wasn't an obstacle to the loss in our passage. It was something that they craved and they longed for, some portion of the lost. And the early church was a place to find it and experience it. The same thing is true today. When we're finally tired of our sin and our selfishness, tired of living the life that we're living, then God produces within us this longing for our heart, a longing for purity and for power and for reality. And when the Holy Spirit is producing that within human lives, he wants there to be Christians who are like that and churches that are like that, not perfect, but like that, that he can then deposit these people into in order that they might grow in their understanding of God and their relationship with the Lord. Today there is a great deal of pressure upon us as Christians to go along and to get along, and almost always that pressure is at the expense of purity and at the expense of Jesus' nature and His teaching. And so it's good every once in a while to stop as we've done here this morning and to remember the blessings of purity. It is a blessing to God. It is a blessing to our lives. And it is a blessing to a world that is watching us 
Don't let the critical ones, the ones that, you know, hate us outwardly and all the venom and all of that, it's a very small proportion of the number of people who are watching us. And as the world becomes a more and more difficult place to live, God will use it to get people's attention and to produce a craving in their life to move from the kingdom that they're in to the kingdom that we are a part of. And this purity and the power of purity is an important part of that. Blesses God. It blesses us. It blesses a world even when sometimes we're unaware of it. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we wouldn't have believed verses 11 through 16 if you hadn't put them in your book. It's completely counterintuitive that what you did with Ananias and Sapphira would produce the incredible things that it produced. It is counterintuitive, Lord. And I pray for my life, and we pray for one another's lives here today. And we pray that the beauty of this passage and what it speaks to about the importance of purity and what you're able to do with it would be strong in our lives. Lord, the pressure of the world is so strong in the other direction. And even within the body of Christ, such strong pressure to throw away purity and obedience and holiness and sobriety and the fear of the Lord in order to make your kingdom and to make you more attractive to this world. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not to do that, but to trust in the power and the work of your Holy Spirit in this world to create a longing in people's hearts in the same way that you did for us, for something different in their lives, ultimately, one day as they would wake up and assess their life, and that, Lord, they would see that different kingdom in and through us. Thank you, Lord, for this important reminder this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.